Hi, everybody. Welcome to New Frontiers in Functional Medicine, where we are interviewing the best minds in functional medicine, and today is no exception. If you like what you hear from us, please circle over to iTunes and leave a review. I'm really excited to be talking to yet another brainiac, but you know somebody who I've gotten to know over the years, and I just really I appreciate his intelligence. Uh, Dr. David Quigg with uh, Doctors Data Lab. Let me give you a little bit of his background, and I'll talk to you about the topic we're going to be diving in today. Uh, David received his BS and MS degrees in human nutrition from Virginia Tech and a PhD in nutritional biochemistry from the University of Illinois. After a five-year stint as a research associate studying lipid biochemistry and cardiovascular disease at Cornell, he was a senior cardiovascular pharmacologist for seven years. For the past 23 years, David's been VP of scientific support support for Dr. Stata. He's focused on toxic elements, methylation, and amino acid metabolism, the applied biochemistry of endogenous detoxification, and the influence of the gastrointestinal metabolome on overall health. David, welcome to New Frontiers. Oh, thank you, Carol. Carol, it's a pleasure to be here. It's always great to be able to pick your brain. So today we're going to be talking about kind of methylation, where maybe we'll dabble a little bit with sulfuration because you really can't talk about one with without the other and then you know the folate vitamin cycle and you know some of the some of the ways that we can use it in clinical practice and it's incredibly useful and important and perhaps you know some of the things that we've misstated in um, the functional medicine or integrative medicine community so just what's your overall view of the clinical importance on assessing methylation uh, thank you. As, thanks for that lead-in because you dropped the, the word uh, transulfuration. But I want to take it back, preface mm -hmm. this whole discussion with starting with methionine. If it, were, if it were up to me, I would call this type of testing methionine metabolism, which is very boring and nerding. But <laughs> the fact of the matter is you can't synthesize a single protein in the body without methionine. And that's because the start codons of messenger RNA transcripts for every protein in the body starts with the code for methionine. So even uh. if ultimately that methionine is cleaved post-translation, right. you can't even start protein synthesis without that methionine. Without a smidge of methionine around. Right. And gotcha. so and that's the very that's the very first thing we look at when we look at methylation transulfuration. There's the yeah. very first step. Um, so you know, there's there's people that try to evaluate methylation by looking at SNPs, um, but as you know, even a homozygous SNP with sufficient documentation of potential for impact may be physiologically insignificant. And yes. MTHFR is a classic example. Yes. Um, for a given individual, we have to consider um, multiple genes for a given metabolic process. Um, for this process of methylation, uh, you look. You really can't look at MTHFR without looking at MTR mm -hmm. and MTRR, or even CBS. You got to look at the whole picture. But most importantly, it, in order to truly know what's going on. Uh, you have to consider also substrate levels and yes. very, very importantly, the epigenetic factors, right. including nutritional, 
uh, deficiencies through the cofactors, mm-hmm. environmental toxicants, yes. oxidative stress, uh, and even drugs that the patients might be taking. So right. we really need to look at the whole metabolic uh, process as it's actually playing out in the body. And we can yep. do that by looking at a blood sample. So it's sort of like like a hyper-focused uh, mini metabolomics, really, pulling it all together. What's really happening genetically and epigenetically. So, all right, let me just unpack a little bit of what you just said. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my goodness. Thank you. <laughs> Um, a lot of people listening to this are obviously going to be versed in methylation and transsulfuration, but for those of you whose jaw you're actually right now scraping up off the ground, I want to, I, I just want to assure you that we'll put a pathway chart up. In fact, we will also put sample reports of doctor's data, doctor's data's methylation panel. In fact, we could put the DNA panel up there too since we're talking about some of the SNPs we'll put the we'll just put a a, a, the glutathione test and then the folate we'll just put a bunch of sample reports up there of things that we're going to be talking about today and then we'll put a pathway chart up up there so what David has just mentioned you can kind of go back and and look at or start this over and have that open in front of you Um, and all right so so you said that you can't look at this in a vacuum a lot of folks are just beginning and ending with their looking at single nucleotide polymorphisms within the um, enzymes of the methylation and transsulfuration cycle. So you're saying you can't do that. You're saying that you, we need to look at substrates. We, knew, we need to look at the activity happening in methylation and sulfuration. Absolutely. And then you also said, let me just say this, and then I'm going to turn it back over to you. And then you also said, which, I mean, I'm so in agreement with you here, David, but you also said something that's really near and dear to my heart and that is that the genetic influence and when we back up and think about that you need to think about whole person and being an environment like so their nutritional status and their toxin exposures and the medications they've been been on and their you know mental emotional sort of stress response like the whole kit and caboodle can have an influence on this pathway would you agree with that summary Oh, absolutely. And, you know, especially with people that are new to this type of testing, when they call for a consult, they'll, they'll tell me the lab number, I'll look up the report, and they'll say, what's going on with this patient? And I say, well, and then I have to start asking all these questions. Tell me about their stress level. Tell me about their exposures, you know, and all these different things. And then probably the last thing I ask is, do you have any genetic data for this individual? So, so many more things um, other than just the genes. Yes. All right. Listen, just so I don't forget, are you available for consults? Are you still? You are? Okay. So clinicians, when you've got a head scratch, head scratch or panel, actually, I do this to you all the time, Dr. Quigg. Yes, you do. You can can consult with him and it, and, you know, as you'll hear from our conversation, it's just he's, he's a goldmine of information. So who's the best candidate for um, the investigation of methylation status? Yeah, the classic would be just, you know, your simple lab core elevated homocysteine. Right. Um, you know, that's, that's the brain, 
branch point where yes. you're going all the way back up to methionine or irreversibly removing um, the homocysteine. Um, also, difficult hormone cases. You know, we mm. had issues with COMT and estrogen metabolism. Mm -hmm. um, and for that matter, people with, um, uh, what do you call them, um, psychiatric kinds of or psychological kinds of issues where you've got um, methylation involved in the metabolism of the catecholamines and serotonin. Yep. Um, but then you've just got people with really bad or very limited diets, um, people with unexplained uh, cognitive dysfunction, which as you know, can be associated with so many different things. Yeah. Especially. Even, I mean, wouldn't you say even known, even if you've diagnosed the cognitive decline or, I mean, wouldn't they be appropriate to investigate absolutely. and any neuro, I would say neurological. Anyway, you go ahead. Yes. I'm going to hush. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and then at the other, at the other side of that, the extreme cases, um, like the people on the spectrum, people with yeah. ADHD. Um, and one of my favorites, is just, um, patients that are paranoid about their MTHFR analysis results. Right. That's if great. You wanna, I mean, yes. that, that single, single snip causes more anxiety. Right. Psychologically. Yes. It may not really be affecting their metabolism at all. So simply to rid their right. before they self-medicate yes. according to some blogger and make things even worse. Right. And, and really get anxiety. Yes. Right. <laughs> Amen, Dr. Quigg. Please, Louise. That's right. I mean, there, there, was a, there was a doc at a conference one time that came up with, to me with her iPad. And she said, oh, you know, she was just so depressed looking. She said, here's my MTHFR results. And I, I just couldn't believe it. She was just totally anxious and depressed because of this single little snip. Yes. And uh, so that led to a long discussion. Yes. Well, I'll tell you what we, I see it in clinic, pra clinic practice all the time. You know, now that people can, can grab their genome, there are the least chunks of their genome. They can look at single nucleotide polymorphisms very readily. There's a lot of anxiety. Yes. I think the, um, I don't, I, I, I don't think that it's really been languaged well. Um, no. It's been overstated and you're right. So people show up at, at my office just really kind of desperate and scared and there's a lot of re-education involved in our work and I appreciate that you're doing it. That said though, that said, I just want to juxtapose with this statement so we don't want to overstate and get really anxious. We've got what, like four million single nucleotide polymorphisms? I mean, if we're oh, going to yeah. be getting anxious about our SNPs, you know, <laughs> we're all in deep trouble. Right. But so on one hand, we need to nuance how we look at it. But on the other hand, you just gave a, an extremely comprehensive look at a list of folks who might want to consider investigating methylation. So there's utility in looking at methylation fitness, would you say, in most individuals? Um, I don't know about most, but certainly a high percentage of people. Um, Okay. Particularly people that are coming in with mood disorders. Um, yep. Yep. Very common. And uh, there's more and more um, psychiatrists now 
that are getting so much more involved with nutrition and, and trying to get, and they actually deal with methylation and mm -hmm. methionine metabolism and get people off their psychoactive drugs. Um, yes. they, just, they go to the source of the problem instead of covering up the symptoms uh, and they fix it. Yeah. It's, it's really fun. It really is. In fact, if you really, if you want to hear a pretty cool podcast, folks, I talked to Dr. Bob Hadaya, who's a just a functional medicine luminary. He's a psychiatrist, and to listen to him talk about methylation and using it in his uh, his practice is is quite inspiring. And then you also talked about estrogen detox, um, and he gives an interesting case where correcting a woman's um, methylation imbalance using folate also turned around her estrogen detox and resolved her endometriosis mm -hmm. he didn't go in planning to treat endometriosis right. he's a psychiatrist and she's like hey by the way yeah. <laughs> my endometriosis is gone it was pretty mind-blowing wow. um all right so you guys are um you're looking at S-adenosylmethionine, like a, just a fundamental player in the methylation cycle. You're also looking at S-adenosylhomocysteine. Um, some labs are only looking at S-adenosylhomocysteine and not S-adenosylmethionine. Can you just talk about limitations with that? Why they might be, just, let's just, yeah, go into yeah. it. Yeah, absolutely. Well. Sam, uh, S-adenosylmethionine, you know, the methyl donor, the first step down from methionine is very, very labile or fragile. So when you do a blood draw, you spin it down to get the plasma, you have to immediately pipette off that plasma and acidify it. If you don't acidify it, that Sam will actually just disappear very rapidly over time making null and void the results for that particular analyte. But it's such an important analyte. The, the instructions for how to do this are so straightforward. And I do understand in busy clinics, people put stuff in the centrifuge and they get busy and they forget and oh my, it's too late. So, you know, it didn't get acidified. Um, but it's so critical because that is the very first step. And yeah. If, you're, if all you're reporting is SOL without knowing the balance between SAM and SOL, it's really hard to try to judge in conjunction with the presentation of the patient, you know, whether there's truly inhibition, whether there's possibly overmethylation. Um, true SOL is, in fact, um, extremely potent inhibitor. But that's exacerbated when you have very low levels of SAM. So, you know, we continue to look at SAM. And in some cases, I look at reports and say, yes, that was mishandled. But there's still a lot of useful information in that report. All right. So handle the specimen. Pay attention. Follow the collection instructions. If you're sending somebody to a phlebotomist, have them, have them pay uh, attention. Yeah, that's... That, those are the worst. I, I'm not real fond of draw centers. They, they tend to not take you seriously, the instructions, and do things as they get around to it. But what's going to be the tip-off for compromised collection? Um, let's say um, this is a, a classic reaction of a precursor in a product. 
So if, if there's a problem in that first step, let's say it's just simple magnesium deficiency. Um, so that methionine isn't being converted to SAM. Well, if that was truly happening, the level of methionine would be high yeah. because there's a block there. The, the uh, product, SAM, would be low. So if you see a very low SAM and it's been done at a draw center or, you know, um, and the methionine is not elevated, that's a real clue that it's not an issue of a step down, but rather sample mishandling. Okay. Okay. So basically if SAM disappears and you don't see a really high methionine. Right. Okay. Okay. Um, I think the other piece, you know, a lot of the good science on looking at methylation uses the CM saw ratio, the methylation index, which you have on the panel. And right. I, I can't, I, I just can't imagine not having that piece of information. Well, and, and the other thing is that SAM itself, the actual level of S adenosyl methionine in the cell, as indicated in the plasma, is in fact a metabolic switch. Um, when yeah. SAM goes high, it shifts um, the metabolism around. It says, okay, we don't want to put as much back up through methionine synthesis. We don't want to take homocysteine back to methionine because that'll just make more SAM. Yeah. So it, it inhibits at MTHFR mm -hmm. and turns on, throws the switch like on a railroad track to increase the flux down through transsulfuration. So homocysteine will now be removed from that whole pathway so that you're not continuing to generate excess SAM. So SAM is a really yeah. um, important metabolic um, switch, if you will, to uh, direct the metabolism. That's really fascinating. And so, and also under conditions of oxidative stress, those yes. enzymes are going to kind of ground to, to a halt. So homocysteine can be shunt, shunt, shunted down into glutathione synthesis. Yes. Um, all right. So I just want to let folks know, you probably know this, but in case you don't, the methylation profile um, from doctor's data is, is, as David said, it, done in plasma. Methionine is on it. Cysteine, S-adenosyl methionine, S-adenosyl homocysteine, homocysteine, and cystothionine. So you get a snapshot of methylation as well as sulfuration, and then the SAMSA ratio is there. Now, you just kind of led us into my next question to you, and that is you don't recommend supplementing with SAM. Why is that? Well, certainly not long-term. Um, Short-term, um, I would say, again, I'm not a clinician, but I, I've, I've known people that use it for diagnostic approaches. If they truly believe that a shortage of SAM is the issue, you can try throwing in some SAM and see what happens. Um, but it's not a pharmacological fix by any stretch of the imagination. Again, you have to figure out why SAM was low, why that person needed more SAM. Did they have an, a greater demand for methylation? If so, right. let's increase their methionine or their choline. Uh, right. eat, eat some eggs. Uh, right. But the other really important thing yeah. is that if people just go to the corner drugstore and buy a bottle of SAM, it's probably useless. Because again, SAM is very, very unstable. And unless it comes in uh, blister packs, you know, individually wrapped um, uh, tablets or capsules of SAM, it's, it's likely to be a brick um, and probably not do a whole lot. 
Um, the compounding pharmacies I know definitely sell SAM in individual blister packs. Um, again, the other thing, why not to use it um, long term? Uh, it, it actually inhibits MTHFR uh, in the conversion to um, tetrahydrofolate, which is an essential component of the folate cycle. So, right. so when, when we talk about going through MTHFR, yes, of course, it's to make 5-methyl tetrahydrofolate the most bioactive form of folate, but you also kick back tetrahydrofolate uh, back into the folate cycle to keep that going. And that's yes. critical because um, the folates have a critical role in, um, in DNA and RNA synthesis and the recycling of BH4. Again, yeah. you got BH4 involved with neurotransmitter metabolism, catecholamines, um, serotonin. Um, also, if you get uh, SAM too high, not only inhibits MTHFR, um, which you're trying to normalize, um, you know, the product from that. It also inhibits MTR, the next enzyme up, and critically, BHMT, the route where you don't have to go through MTHFR. So you're really, mm -hmm. you're really potentially totally disrupting the entirety of methylation by throwing in pharmacological dosing with SAM. Right, um, for long term. So yes, quick, long term. okay, okay, because it, it is, it can be really, can be actually quite helpful in, in, in certain patients, but I, I without question in, in my practice, I've seen um, folks come to me taking it and, and have some unusual looking uh, methylation panels as a result. Yeah, some, yeah. some imbalances requiring correcting. So, and yeah. you, have to, you have to remember that all SAM in the body will ultimately become SAL. And so right. if a person starts feeling better, you know, right. taking X grams of SAM, the classic North American approach is, oh, that was good, so more is better, right? So right. they take a lot more, and next thing you know, they've created so much SAL that they're, again, inter impeding or in inhibiting the process that they're trying to facilitate. Yeah, that's right. And as you point out, there's all sorts of feedback inhibition and, and you just end up imbalancing this, you know, delicate and rather involved folate cycle. Um, okay, so the folate, the doctor's data folate um, metabolism panel, you're looking at, and I'm going to ping you on some questions, but you're looking at folinic, you measure folic acid or synthetic folate, you're looking at tetrahydrofolate, um, and then of course 5-methyl tetrahydrofolate. So that, that's the panel available in plasma. Um, and let's just talk about, you know, you talk about CME actually being able to throw off uh, folate vitamin cycle, um, but it, and, and you've, you know, you're talking now too about using high doses of MTHF with patients, but just in, in you know, just talk to me about you know, what you've seen in labs and from talking to other clinicians and your thoughts around um, how you dose different folates, when to use what, and what kind of problems we might um, encounter. It, the interesting thing about 5-methyl um, is that there's, there's pretty much three different types of people. Um, some tolerate it just fine. Others crash immediately. Uh, anxiety, um, insomnia, anger to rage, uh, just 
totally brain fog. Or others will do okay for a little while and then crash. So it's, it's really difficult and why it's, I, I don't wanna get into specific dosing again because I'm not a clinician, but I just think um, with all my background in pharmacology, it always mm -hmm. makes sense to mm -hmm. start out low and even pulse, maybe even not even every day. Start out low and then slowly build up. Um, you don't wanna throw a big dose at people and then have them come back or call you and say, oh my God, I'm going crazy. What do you think is prompting that reaction with methylfolate in particular? I mean, what um, do you, what, what's happening biochemically, do you suspect? Well, you, you're creating, you're creating um, an excessive amount of SAM. Yeah. And um, you, high levels of SAM also inhibit a super enzyme called GNMT, or glycine N-methyltransferase. So glycine N-methyltransferase is the, is the way for the body to handle an overflow of SAM. It's unlike other methyltransferases, GNMT is not down-regulated or inhibited by SAL. So when you have an excess amount of SAM, the body comes to the rescue with this very robust enzyme that takes that SAM and converts it, uh, methylates glycine and converts it into sarcosine, which is very safe and actually mm. beneficial for the liver. Mm. Um, and so that's kind of, it's, it's just, um, you just don't want to knock out that enzyme because that is the enzyme that will naturally keep uh, under, under normal conditions, normal genetic and epigenetic conditions, um, the level of SAM at a level that will provide adequate uh, methyl donation um, and not overdo it. Huh, that's pretty interesting. And to yeah. follow on that, so, that, so that's um, with 5-methyl. Um, I think that underappreciated is folinic acid. Um, yeah. Well, let's take a step back and talk about uh, uncooked green leafy vegetables. <laughs> we got to start yeah. there. Um, yeah, that's right. And, um, but folinic acid is, is an awesome form of folate, uh, of folate vitamins. It's, it can go uh, as the body needs in through um, uh, five or, or MTHFR. It has its own path going in through and being involved in DNA synthesis and even over to uh, recycling um, uh, BHT. So folinic acid is also, as you well know, the rescue drug for methotrexate, which mm -hmm. trashes folate metabolism, period. Right. And also in many autistic children that have autoantibodies to the uh, folate receptor, and they basically get cerebral, fo um, uh, cerebral folate deficiency. And folinic acid is awesome because it can cross the blood-brain barrier without that receptor, and it normalizes um, everything that goes on methylation-related in the brain whereas 5-MTHF uh, wouldn't do that. Certainly synthetic folic acid wouldn't do that. Um, so folinic acid, I don't think is as well appreciated as it should be. It's just not as trendy to <laughs> folinic acid right now. But there's many good reasons to do that. Yeah, I agree with you. I, I like folinic acid. I think after just this whole cerebral folate story hit the benefit of folinic home to me and 
um, likewise in folks who don't tolerate methylfolate and you know folinic acid is great and even when you know you and I were just talking offline even in folks with significant polymorphisms you know in MTHFR and, and elsewhere the folate cycle whirs on and mm -hmm. and whirs on probably you know fine in many of us so you know again I think looking at the folate vitamins that you're offering on your panel and you know looking at that in the context with the methylation information and glutathione you have red blood cell glutathione as well you can really get a good snapshot of what's going on um, actively in the body versus just stopping at SNPs what about so what about synthetic folic acid you know that's certainly been vilified in the biggest way I mean where's your position on that yeah, well, I think it's great for preventing neural tube defects, period, mm -hmm. end of story. Um, and if, if yeah. the research, research clearly shows that this synthetic folic acid, um, it can be useful up to, it looks like about 400 micrograms a day. But here's the problem, with mandatory um, food fortification with folic acid, people eating their yes. processed foods or just getting right, so right, much right. folic acid. And so yeah. even giving them, you know, 400 micrograms, which went in controlled feeding studies where that's all the folic acid they were getting, they were fine. You put somebody who's eating, you know, Twinkies and, and Cheerios and everything else fortified. And, yes. and all of a sudden now in, in, and it's actually serum folate panel, what you'll see is this nasty and really fun to say is UMFA, U-M-F-A, unmetabolized folic acid. Now that unmetabolized folic acid, it blocks the whole metabolism, metabolic process from natural folates on down. It, it binds to folate receptors and transporters and just gunks up the works. And it's even been associated with certain types of cancer. Right. And a pretty scary study out of Canada recently showed that they found significant levels of unmetabolized folic acid in the blood of all of the mothers and their newborn infants. Um, mm. it's, it's just oomph. It's not good. Yeah. Um, Okay, so unmetabolized folic acid, folks, aka folic acid, you know, um, aka synthetic folic acid. So you can hear it listed, you know, you'll see it written as, as, as a handful of different names. So we're talking about the same thing. And it is, as David points out, pretty hard to activate in the body. It actually, you know, it's, 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 it has to cycle through um DFA, difolate, actually DFR, excuse me, dihydrofolate reductase twice before it's um, activated. And so, yeah, it can gunk up the works. I concur. And yet, you know, if you are, and, 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 and because we're eating massive amounts and there's this mandatory folic acid fortification program, um, there are, are really high blood levels that you've pointed out and some of the fallout, like the increased risk in cancer. And yet the flip side of that is that they started this public health initiative, you know, with good intentions and actually did reduce birth defects. Yes. So it was, 
it, I mean, it really had an amazing, uh, really almost miraculous beneficial effect. But now, um, over years, we're seeing that there's some negative fallout. And certainly, we're advising our patients not to eat uh, fortified uh, grains anymore. Yeah. And, and the reason that that particular form, that synthetic folate, is used is because it's it's stable very very stable and yeah. it's dirt dirt cheap so the two primary reasons and and i get why they use that but yeah when it's in so many different things and now that's we right. have this craze of people taking folates that's right indiscriminately then it becomes a problem right that is yep that's right so on that you know on that note talk to me about this whole idea of overmethylation. And what, what are your thoughts around that? There's a lot of questions. There's just a lot floating around on overmethylation. I have patients call me all the time. I think I'm an overmethylator, but yeah. what, do you, what do you think? I, I think it's a great question. And I do think that it's, it's very much overemphasized because there are some very smart people that are doing some great things um, working with schizophrenia where it's estimated to be about about 35% or so of schizophrenic uh, patients do appear to be overmethylating. But that generalization has been applied to the whole population. Um, and there's really, there's really no research out there about the general population about why is this potential overmethylation even happening? Um, Traditional concern about overmethylation relates to the percentage of DNA in a very standardized test in, say, lymphocytes, where there's yeah. a pretty set normal percentage of DNA that's methylated because methylation turn, turns genes primarily off right. um, or on. So it's an important way to regulate gene expression. Right. Um, so looking at the uh, DNA and lymphocytes, but there's just so little published in the literature um, about overmethylation outside of the whole DNA phenomenon. Right. Um, and the really interesting thing is I was rereading on this the other day and uh, uh, Matt, the conversion of methionine to adenosyl um, um, methionine is underexpressed when there is hypermethylation. So the gene that is responsible for the synthesis of the first step in methionine metabolism to make SAM is turned off when, um, when there's too much methylation. So, you know, I'm, I'm not shy to say that I don't really know what's going on here. I know a lot of people talk about overmethylation, and I've certainly read the literature on schizophrenia. Um, but I just don't know how much it's really happening in the general population. Yes, that's right. At least at this biochemical level, if you could just sort of artificially distinguish epigenetic methylation or DNA methylation, as you mentioned, and biochemical methylation, that is just what the production, I, overmethylation, the production of too much SAM initiating too many biochemical activities. Right. And, that, and I think, I think some of it might come from people having read um, little snippets here and there, shouldn't say snippets, little pieces here and there <laughs> about, uh, oh, they have a low um, uh, histamine 
level. Yeah. Well, histamine gets methylated. And so one reason that histamine could be low, it would be if you're methylating it and forming and methylhistamine. However, there's also another enzyme that can cause lower histamine, not to mention low histidine in the diet. So sure. I think it's maybe part of the reason why, you know, people, they, they've come to say, oh, a simple way without looking at all this methylation stuff, just look at histamine. And if it's low, oh, you're over-methylating. Uh, there's more to it on the front end and the back end. And while that might be a good place to start and say, oh, now let's look at plasma methylation, I don't think you can just stop there. Yeah, well, that's right. And certainly you're not going to be, you know, dumping out a heck of a lot of histamine unless there's an assault on, you know, mast cells or, you know, an upregulation, some sort of out, some exogenous, well, I suppose endogenous stimuli. Oh, yeah, blastocystis would be a classic example. Right, yeah, that's right. That's a good point. Right, parasites or, you know, an allergic reaction. Right. Um, right, so, yeah, I, I, I do think, um, in fact, you know, just as you were talking, David, I wanted to pull up a histamine reference range. I was curious, like, how would one actually determine that their homocysteine is low? So I just grabbed ARUP. It just popped up quick. And their, their, their reference limit is zero to eight. So I don't know how you would necessarily infer a low, <laughs> unless you. Yeah. <laughs> Zero is normal, so how is yeah. Yeah. negative? Negative. Yeah. Maybe. Right. 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 Undetected. Well, undetected is normal for them. So. Yeah, right. Um, yeah, I think we need to be careful about this idea of overmethylation, and definitely, as you say, it is a phenomenon in epigenetics. We turn genes off by you know methylating them, but we're not. We don't have access yet to um, those kinds of epigenetic panels, at least not, not super routinely. Um, anything else? So, you know, you've made a couple of allusions to single nucleotide polymorphisms and their, and their utility. And just, you know, what about uh, CBS? So, so talking about methylation and transsulfuration, CBS mutation either you know, up or down regulating activity is, it has a lot of, of, of press in our world. Yeah, it does. Um, and just so everybody's on the same page, what we're talking about here is at that branch point of homocysteine, leaving the whole methionine cycle, if you will, and irreversibly pulling homocysteine out down through transsulfuration, sulfuration to produce cysteine, um, essential sulfates, um, ultimately glutathione. And CBS, CBS is the enzyme I referred to that's actually upregulated. It's actually stabilized by high levels of SAM. Again, the body's saying, I, I got too much SAM. Let's get rid of this stuff. We'll send it down through transulfuration. Oh, by the way, nice byproduct. We'll get some cysteine and glutathione. Um, and there are SNPs for every enzyme in the body. And there are numerous uh, CBS SNPs um, out there that have been, you know, documented. And yes, this is for real. But interestingly about CBS, the only one of clinical relevance that I've seen to date is actually upregulates the activity, which is going to result in um, pulling homocysteine uh, down, 
um, pulling uh, basically out of the loop to get back to methionine, but the beneficial effect would be going on down to make um, uh, cysteine, uh, taurine, and glutathione. So right now, I haven't I haven't seen any SNPs that cause for sluggish transsulfuration. Um, more important there would be the next step, would be which is cystathionine gamma lyase or CTH. Now there, where you have a significant disruption, there you're going to bottleneck the whole sulfuration process, and the ultimate um, worst scenario would be low cysteine sulfate, not sulfite but sulfate, and low glutathione. Um, so that next step, both of which are B6 dependent. Um, is apparently much more important than the CBS SNP itself. Well, and is that something that we're seeing um, relatively common? No. Okay. And when you, I know you're looking at, you've looked at thousands of these reports. Do you see evidence of that on the panels? Um, occasionally, yes, but not very often. Um, when I see it, I get very excited because um, it's pretty clear <laughs> what's going on there. And how, and what are you advising for intervention? Are you saying B6? Um, that would be your first shot, uh -huh. um, uh, B6. Um, and then also because, you know, it may be that if it's too sluggish for that individual's environmental exposures and their needs for cysteine and glutathione, you might have to just bypass it mm -hmm. and give some N-acetylcysteine um, and yep. or liposomal glutathione or s S-acetyl um, uh, glutathione, um, worst case scenario, that's pretty benign to bypass that one. Right, right. And so you might see evidence of, you might see low glutathione on a red blood cell glutathione and higher oxidative stress? Yes. Yeah, okay. Okay. So if you see that panel, if you see that pattern, if you're concerned about cystothionine, um, is it cystothionine gamma lyase? Yes, CTH. Okay. okay. So if you see if you see a, if you see what you suspect is a CTH mutation, or if you're aware of that in your patient, you can actually talk to David about it at Doctor's Data. But you can also look at some of the downstream products to make sure they're sufficient. And if not, we can we have access to those. We can treat them. And there's lots of good oxidative stress markers that we can use to see whether or not um, there's a significant fallout with a CTH mutation. Uh, all right. Well, we've covered a lot. I think we're we just, I think we're, we're I think we've 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 gotten really some of the important high points here. Um, let me just ask you. You know, the whole we started this conversation, and I think the whole interest in methylation was really kind of born out of more routine measurement of homocysteine, mm -hmm. and. I, and generally speaking, we see an elevated homocysteine. We know it's, it, you know, it's associated with cardiovascular disease risk, but it's also obviously, as, you, as we've talked about today, related to a whole lot more. Um, most of us go to address a homocysteine successfully, actually, using folate and a natural folate and B12. But what else? What else do you think about with a higher homocysteine? Yeah, I, I, you know, the old school, I mean, you go back and look at the literature in the, in the late 80s and 90s when, you know, homocysteine was really come of day for being a significant risk factor for cardiovascular disease. 
And the way they approached it then um, was with uh, betaine. Oh, was it? Um, and B6. Cool. Because 85% wow. um, of methylation reactions take place in the liver. And that's also the greatest source tissue for the BHMT. So without having to go through MTHFR, you can take a shortcut at the liver yeah. and turn that homocysteine back into methionine. So it's just a nice, easy, single-step process where the, the donor is the trimethylglycine or betaine. Um, and that's great. It's, it's just a very simple way, and you don't have to worry about hypermethylation or anything like that. Um, the only thing to keep in mind, and there's always a caveat, um, <laughs> and that is that the central nervous system has minimal, if any, BHMT activity. So in terms of trying to lower homocysteine, betaine, B6, B12 are great, but if you have reason to uh, need to deal with methylation um, on the north side of the blood-brain barrier, then you really have to go, you can't rely on the, uh, the betaine to do that. You have to go through the 5-methyltetrahydrate. Uh, uh, okay. Tetrahydrofolate stuff. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So it's very tish, tissue specific. We always have to keep that in mind. And so many times people, they, they look at a pathway and they say, uh-huh, yep, there's the product. And, ooh, uh-oh, if there's too much of that, it'll inhibit it. But not only you have to think about the kinetics, the enzyme kinetics, and what is too high, just because there's a little bit high? No. Um, what are the real kinetics? And then most importantly, back to my point, is tissue specificity. Right, right. If you, you know, you're going to actually be preserving, if you use betaine and work specifically in the liver, you're going to be preserving B12 and folate for the central nervous system. So you might Absolutely. actually get away with that. But would you yeah. argue when you're dealing with some sort of a neurodevelopmental or neurodegenerative condition or psychiatric condition, you might want to use both, you might want to address both pathways. Would Absolutely. You, would you? Absolutely. Okay. Again, again, okay. that's where our friend folinic acid comes in. And as you said earlier, start really low dose. Yes. And have patients kind of slowly titrate up. All right. Um, as usual, David, it's always just a pleasure to get to talk to you. You did a teach-in for us not too long ago in our clinic immersion program, and it was quite popular. Actually, we were talking about um, heavy metals, and you and you just offered some great uh, background on you know, on considerations for detoxing, and we went through your lab. So it was fabulous to have you there, and I'm sure you're going to be back either in a teach-in or another podcast with us in the not-so-distant future. So keep up the great work. Thanks I'll for coming on. You're very welcome. Thank you.